Hello, everybody, and welcome to A Soulful Revolution, a podcast at the intersection of spiritual transformation and social change. I invite you to pull up a seat at the table as I speak with soulful revolutionaries whose lives are a powerful source of hope and inspiration for me, as I trust they will be for you also. I'm Lauren Grubaugh-Thomas, a priest, writer, spouse, and twin mama living in Littleton, Colorado, on the traditional homelands of the Arapaho and Cheyenne peoples. My guest today is the Reverend Jean-Pierre Seguin. Jean-Pierre, whose pronouns are they, them, serves as priest in charge of the Episcopal Church of Grace and Resurrection, East Elmhurst, Queens. Living in Brooklyn, New York, they are active in collective projects for mutual aid and social transformation, especially in the areas of racial justice, housing, LGBTQ plus liberation, and care for migrants. They love their cats, biking, and playing music with friends. Jean-Pierre, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. I want to begin by asking you to share about what it means for you to be a soulful revolutionary, someone who lives and works at this intersection of spiritual transformation and social change. For me, being a soulful revolutionary means being grounded in hope and having a vision for social transformation. It means being aware of the suffering in the world and also growing and cultivating with others solutions that start from the ground up and offer new transformed ways of being. I see in the last five or 10 years, how in many areas of U.S. society, social justice has taken on an increased place, as well as um, reactionary forces of oppression and exploitation. And I see the spiritual component as grounding individuals and communities to ancestors, be they ancestors within a particular spiritual tradition, or be they ancestors within the traditions of movement work. It involves seeing that people before us have faced similar challenges that we face, in some ways new challenges in the present, and that there is still a future, and a future that includes, and not only includes, but embraces all of us. Mm, That sense of connection to the past as fuel and medicine for the present and for the future, that's a really hopeful thing. I know that a lot of your work involves being with folks of our generational, millennials and younger Gen Z folks, who don't see a lot of hope for the future. And I'm really curious to hear more about the work that you do in a post-church context with people who don't trust institutions and don't have a lot of faith in what has come before. And how do you find rhythms of spirituality and and rituals of communion with with God, with others, emerging in these, these spaces of total disconnection from institutions with all of the challenges and gifts that that includes? That's a great prompt and a great question. I'll just start by saying that for me, there's long been a connection for me between faith and social action and organizing. A lot of my early political, ethical, moral formation happened through 
family and friends. And some of those folks based their organizing often around the peace movement of uh, a generation or so ago in the Christian tradition. And I ground my own faith, my own praxis in an intersectional liberationist theology. And um, I'm grateful to have been able to do the theological, the theoretical work um, in conversation with Global South theologians and practitioners of all sorts. And so for me, I have a certain directness. Um, I tend to show up in organizing spaces fully as myself. And that sometimes includes showing up in a collar. Sometimes it doesn't. And despite the reputation that young people, millennials and younger have for rejecting religion or rejecting the institution, religious institutions, I've gotten curiosity 90% of the time uh, Mm -hmm. when it to showing up in progressive left organizing spaces. Sometimes people are curious. Sometimes people will be like, how did you get here? Like the why and the how, and I'm happy to have that conversation. So it's part of who I am. And um, especially where I live right now in Brooklyn and New York City, I have A, been able to connect with other people of faith who are engaged in projects of social transformation. And I have showed up, I have exercised my ministry in these contexts. So in terms of working with comrades and friends, um, a number of my comrades are radical Jews. And there are in New York City, especially around Brooklyn, a number of uh, DIY Jewish projects. And so I remember last year there was a defense of a long-term Black family, three generations, and there was a, a landlord who was trying to, had taken their deed to the house. And a number of my Jewish friends showed up one Friday for Shabbat because the landlord happened to be Jewish and there had been some allegations of anti-Semitism and people showed up and incorporated readings from scripture and readings from the history of anti-fascist Jewish organizing. And so I've seen the ways in which ritual and these connections get woven in. A lot of it happens just by showing up. I've had the responsibility, the honor of leading the organizing and officiating the funeral for a comrade who happened to die about two years ago last month. And we came together. The reason that I did it was because I was there. The family was Orthodox Christian, and they turned to me and said, we want you to do the funeral. Mm. This person was not religious at the time of their death. And so we organized an anarchist funeral for Mm. this. (laughs) And incorporated poems and readings and people contributed all sorts of writing. And it was a beautiful moment. And it's um, one of those moments of pastoral care that sticks with me the most as a priest, because people don't tend to think of radicals as people who need ritual. And yet we made 
a space for grief and celebration in the backyard of a gallery. It was a necessary and beautiful moment in the midst of tragedy. Wow. Would you say more about, I love that line, people don't tend to think of radicals as people who need ritual. Would you say more about when you say ritual, what does that mean? And then how does that operate in your context? For me, people think more about the fire and less about the balm, to put it a little poetically. They think of the anger, they think of the signs and the chants, and all of that is an important part of social change. When something's wrong, it is only fitting that people raise their voices. And that, that's indeed for Christians tapping into that prophetic tradition. Christians aren't just meant to be pleasant. You shouldn't be pleasant towards situations of injustice. I, there, there is that point. For me, it connects to a way that activism culture or mainstream activism culture, insofar as it exists, is generally associated with secularism. Mm. And that's to say that religious organizing doesn't exist. There are plenty of folks who do that work. It's just that it's not always the most visible. Also, the work of social change involves whether or not one is exposed to it by nature of one's identity, it involves engaging with violence and suffering and all of these very potentially traumatizing things. And I think that um, what's often less visible, sometimes by necessity, but what's less visible is the the dreaming that happens in terms mm. of dreaming of a better world. And that is often and can be enacted through collective ritual. You mentioned the funeral as a really crucial turning point for you and your ministry. Are there other experiences of ritual in these spaces where ritual is not expected? You know, in New York City with leftist social organizers who are not connected, again, with institutional religion in a lot of cases, though some may be. What are other ways in which you find ritual just kind of organically popping up? What are some of the ways that you find spirituality nourishing the movement? I I think it happens a lot of times under the radar. You have people who are um, have knowledge and expertise in herbal medicine, and they might make salves and medicines that they share with their friends. There's people who engage with traditions like tarot or something like that and do that as a way of collective meaning making. You have folks coming together around shared meals. And I think mm -hmm. that those those can be opportunities. Does that always get fully developed? No, it's it happens in fits and starts. But I do see an interest in engaging with that either the mystical, the reflective, of connecting with ancestors, of finding these different practices that map onto what we often think of in a Western context as religion. I mean, this is sort of analogous. It's not all sadness. I had the opportunity to do um, the wedding, to officiate the wedding for some friends of mine who, you know, it was a bunch of goths at this wedding. They wanted mm -hmm. to do it cemetery of course naturally yeah but the wedding was done according to the inclusive language rituals of the episcopal church 
it was done very much at the request of the couple in line with the tradition. It's a way that living outside of the norm or queerness or all these things very much can be brought into and are indeed never really truly separated from these rituals of meaning making. In thinking about these questions, a lot of it comes down to like traveling light. I mean, depending on the tradition, depending on the ritual, you don't need a ton of supplies. You don't need to have a huge space. A lot of it can be done very DIY. And yet people relish these moments and savor these moments that they can come together and be together and participate mm -hmm. in, in ritual. And I think it doesn't, it it's a lot more based around practice than around um, ideological uniformity. Yes. That is something I've been mulling over a lot recently. This idea that community follows action versus community followed shared belief. And I'm curious, you know, as there's research that's coming out from Candler School of Theology at, at Emory about this shift that we're undergoing from an age of association where identity was primarily derived from belonging to various institutions, of which the church was an important one, toward an age of authentic individuality where we define our own path and individuality is imposed upon us by late capitalism and this idea that all we are at the end of the day is a consumer. And so I find myself really curious about where community fits in the mix and as we shift away from institutions that make our identities and toward this sense of everyone being on their own path. And I'm especially intrigued about what it looks like for community to be formed from shared action, from shared practice. And I know that's a lot of what you do in these activist spaces where you find yourself. And I'm curious about the way that identity interacts, including your own ident identities, how that engages and interacts with shared action and how that shared action moves you all toward community. And what does that community look like? Yeah, that's a very important question for for the moment we find ourselves in. I really appreciate that you identified the ways both that we choose authentic individuality and the ways that uh, the neoliberal hellscape imposes individuality mm -hmm. on us. I think like, people talk about atomization. People talk about having difficulty making friends sometimes. The reason I don't have that is because I have community. And the reason I have community where I live is because of organizing and activism. That's not the only mm -hmm. place community, but that was really the seed that planted community for me here in New York City. A big part of it, as you said, is that shared action. If everybody cares about welcoming migrants and, you know, you're making sure that people have blankets, that is a shared activity. That is meaning making. That is um, so many important, just so many important social aspects wrapped up in these actions. And also along the way, you manage conflict, you navigate conflict, you grow closer together as people, you build strong friendships, you build collegial relationships, even with people who annoy you. 
I think there is that work that so often doesn't happen for adults after you leave a family situation. I'm not saying every family situation is uh, wonderful, but as adults, you're expected to work together with people in the workplace. And outside of that, people just aren't joining civic organizations. They aren't attending church. It's not just religious congregations. It's all sorts of organizations. They aren't affiliating, like the research you mentioned said. I think about it for me as a queer and trans person where I am a priest. I Being a priest and the work of ministry is very important to me, but there is always going to be a level at which the institutional church can never fully meet my needs right. because much of the institutional structure even when it is goes beyond being welcoming to being affirming to being embracing there's a certain essential aspect of being known and loved in community that only happens with other queer people mm-hmm. and it happens with other queer people in the church and it does happen with those who are allies and co-conspirators but i think the church sometimes can trip over its own feet in terms of putting too much emphasis on putting the right flag up and not as much emphasis on what it actually looks like to build a culture, a church culture that sees somebody from a marginalized identity, perhaps different than that of the congregate local congregation, sees that person and truly sees them as a beloved child of God, to use mm-hmm. the language from my tradition. Um, and I think that too often religious congregations, they build up walls and there's not enough entry. There needs to be movement. There needs to be movement in and out. And it's great when that involves people actually being invited in to collaborate. There's no one pathway forward. One of those questions I often get as a younger clergy person is, oh, you're going to bring all the young people to the church. I can't do that on my own. That is a collective process. But I've also been in movement spaces. I remember years ago in 2016, having the the opportunity to witness and support uh, the water defenders at Standing Rock. Mm-hmm. And one space did very well in the various water protector camps was every camp had a fire and they had a water ceremony every morning. And if the elders were cold, someone got them a jacket or a blanket. If they needed something to drink, someone got them a cup of coffee. That wasn't reinventing the wheel. That was people doing what was in their cultural tradition to do. Mm. So much was happening there had the effect it did because people were returning to ceremony. They were participating in ceremony. They were relearning traditional practices and ways of being. And that was, it took work. People spent time every day cooking and cleaning and bringing in wood. And it was a huge collective effort. But the thing that made it more than just a protest encampment or a more accurately a, you know, water defense encampment was that it was grounded in the ceremonies of the people whose ancestors had been engaging in embodied practice on that land for generations. And that's not a thing you can replicate. And so when we look at the world about us, so many people who get involved in activism were trying to build 
a better world. We're trying to create a new society, any number of goals. And yet we work, we struggle, we're challenged by the alienation that is so prevalent in the society around us. And I think even when it seems tough, part of my role is that I am a priest and people know I am a priest and I take care of people. You know, mm-hmm. it's aspect of spiritual care and it's there's other people with healing and care roles in the movement and we all often work together and it it's all about cooperation and recognizing the ways that we we build community not just for some far-off goal but it's as an anarchist i would say that i want the praxis of today to be a seed that builds up to the future we dream for tomorrow Mm. I want to pull a little bit on that thread of having culturally embedded practices because I recognize in the story that you're telling that there is an element of how cultural genocide has often attempted to strip away those practices and that that white that white supremacy specifically has attempted to strip deeply healing, connective, resilience building practices away from Black communities, Indigenous communities, and people of color. So I'm I'm curious, you're a white person working within a community of color in terms of your church work, working with a Black congregation, what it looks like for you to be reclaiming your own cultural practices and to be creating cultural practices and being able to be honoring of practices from other traditions, from other cultural groups that are not your own? Like, what does that dynamic look like for you? I mean, there's so, I know there's so many layers there of, um, of complexity, but I, I'm so curious because I, I see you in your life and, and in the stories you're telling today in this dance of honoring the different traditions and spiritualities of so many different peoples so what keeps you rooted? What are your cultural, culturally rooted practices? And how do you honor those of the communities that you find yourself in? Thank you for pulling on that thread. I am happy to travel this road a little more. <laughs> I love the dance that I engage in. And I do so mindfully and I do so carefully, but not so carefully that I'm tiptoeing. As a Christian, there's such an emphasis on love. And so much of Jesus' ministry was based in just in being present with the people around him. And I see very much that, as a priest, that being my role. Um, mm-hmm. I've had the delight over the past month, since I've started serving an Afro-Caribbean congregation, I've had one couple walk into my office. Um, they said, oh, we thought you were Haitian, because I have a mm-hmm. French. I love that. I mean, I think that that's... Uh, numerous people have said that and you know there's something to a name and my parents gave me uh, the name Jean-Pierre because of the Quebecois ancestors I have I mean I can trace that genetic lineage all the way back to Quebec in 1685 I've wow I have ancestors in North America for centuries I think about the way I grew up, my parents were very dedicated to helping my sibling and I connect to the natural world and connect 
more particularly to the Great Lakes. I grew up in Detroit and to connect with the Great Lakes. And often that was through camping, spending time on the land, spending time in the woods, developing a sense of connection to place. Even if I know that I come from a colonial lineage, ever really since I've started learning about it, I've had a certain fascination with the colonial realities we live in and the ways in which, whether or not we like it, we all share this land. We all live on Turtle Island together now. I remember being at Standing Rock and a lot of the Lakota, Dakota, Nakota, a lot of the indigenous folks were like, oh, the long robes are back. And that that was loaded because missionaries are not an uncomplicated thing. Wow. Wow. Yep. But going there as part of a clergy delegation and a lot of people, including myself, wearing religious insignia, it kind of hit me like a pile of bricks. This is connecting back to a very involved legacy. I've known people with indigenous lineages from that part of the world, and I've studied the history of uh, missionaries, and I kind of intentionally put myself in those spaces. I think I'm drawn to it in a certain way. And I, there's, you know, there's always a lot of work for healing. For me, it connects to just being a human with other humans mm-hmm. on one hand, and also recognizing on the other, the deep need to honor the particularity of different peoples and cultures lived experiences. So for me, I think as, as a bilingual Spanish English speaking priest, I've made it my business to do ministry with Latina people. And I have been so welcome at different times, different places, most recently as an interim priest with different parishes to do that work. And I've done the work to be culturally informed and to learn and maintain the language. I think the reason that I'm able to do it at all is because of a cultivated sense of humility. Mm a love. I'm grateful for all the people who in my life, in the formative years of my life, exposed me to different cultures and different influences and taught me affirmatively that every culture has value and every person has value. I think that the church and religious communities in general are often well positioned to challenge those uh systems of segregation that still exist to this day. Given the work I do, that's a lot of how I think about it. It's in terms of, you know, if you're gathering for worship, everyone's doing that together. I can offer what I bring and other people can offer their gifts. And insofar as I am a facilitator of people opening their gifts and bringing their wisdom to the conversation, to the gathering, I hope and pray that I can be effective. I've heard you use organic language throughout our conversations, idea of planting seeds, and just now this sense of cultivating a sense of humility. And I wonder about that as a spiritual practice, this cultivation of humility, especially when entering into spaces of incredible diversity (laughs) and spaces where there's been, people have experienced various degrees of oppression And I'm curious what that looks like for you to cultivate that sense of humility. How do you practice that? Uh, It starts from being able to connect with the earth. 
that for me is a good gauge. It's a good barometer. If I feel like I, you know, I'm walking, but I don't feel where my feet are planted, that that's a wake up call. I've got to be able to connect to the world around me, the natural world around me, if I'm going to connect to the people around me. Um, and that's, you know, the, the gospels say that that's something that Jesus did when he got overwhelmed. So I mm -hmm. think, you know, that's something I picked up from my family and from different practices. And I maintain that because, I mean, I live in a city, but I reject the idea that nature is something outside the city. And also making sure that I can listen and be present with other people. Uh, so much of the work is about being present together. And that means, yeah, being able to sit together and notice and pay attention. It's also about seeing the beauty and seeing the joy and seeing what people are creating, being open to where that leads, encountering people in a compassionate way and hoping that they connect to you in the same way. I think there's definitely a need to be able to hold one's own in the world and have boundaries, and that's perfectly healthy. And I think there's also a need to be open to other people. You look at um, the dehumanization of migrants or the unhoused, and so much of that is possible because people have been convinced to see someone as less than them because they're dirty, because they don't have shelter, because they're fleeing violence or structurally enforced poverty or all of these other calamities that are affecting the globe. Global warming always looms these days. And I think that it involves, yeah, it involves prayer, it involves meditation, and it involves remembering and holding fast to the things that are most important to us. Every person's going to find their own way of doing that. And I think in terms of the communities I'm a part of, I really value that. Um, I like talking to friends who are reconnecting to their faith in one way or another. I love when someone will be like, hey, I want to talk about the Bible. I'll talk about the Bible with someone. And I think that it comes down to an openness to building community. And it's great when that happens within the walls of a church. And there are certain benefits to having a piano or an organ and a roof overhead. But I think there's also great beauty and importance in building that community with what you have. And I think that for me, that connects to my faith in terms of just the way that so many church reformers and so many people who transformed the church did so from a place of poverty. And they did so from a place of spiritual discipline. The abolitionist writer Adrian Marie Brown talks about, I'm forgetting the exact essay, but she talks about hope as a discipline. And she brings in different uh, religious figures who talk about that, especially the invisible work of movement spaces, of holding movement communities together and helping to people helping people to grow it involves that embodied practice it involves sharing a cup of coffee or a meal with someone and it involves taking that walk around the neighborhood any number of things just to be human hmm. you're saying that call to mind the prophet micah saying 
what does God require of you but to seek justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly? And I was reminded that in Latin, humility has the same root word as earth. It's humus. It's the word of, of there's that earthiness to being able to walk. And when you talked about the ground under your feet, being able to feel, to literally ground yourself, to be able to feel the earth holding you, I I was struck by the fact that what you're describing is prophetic work, that returning home <laughs> to our sense of belonging to the earth and belonging to ourselves. And it's creative work. What are what will we make of this this gift of life and this extraordinary privilege of walking the earth with one another in this time and place? It is holy to move through the world and to create movement with the spirit, with with the divine, with God, and with one another. And and that's what I see you doing with so much um grace. <laughs> I, I mentioned the word dance earlier. I think that you you manage to be in so many different kinds of spaces with such incredible grace and kindness. And I thank you for that, for the way that you you inhabit the this work and, and your own life. Thank you. Thank you for the work you do that creative dance of uh, connecting activists to spirit and to ritual and to meaning and bringing people into conversation. I think that it really is, it's more than a dialogue, it's a conversation. And I think that we're only gonna find our way through to renewed spiritual communities, to renewed communities period, through these conversations. And just sort of in thinking about our conversation today, I think that what I what what I often detect in conversations within the institutional church is people are like, well, there's a fear of not having enough. Mm-hmm. And yet, sort of the good news, the hope that I can bring to that conversation from my participation in these more autonomous, do-it-yourself, upstart little communities is that we have plenty of resources. The loaves, the fishes, all of that is there. People have, people bring so much and a lot of it is bringing it to life and people together and creating something that is real for them. And that is, brings them fully into the present moment and helps them to process and make sense of their life and the life of their ancestors. And it keeps them looking forward, dreaming for something new. I think, you know, one of the beauties of a post-colonial Christianity is that we don't have to be bound by these progressive ideas of time. Time can be many things. And when we are in these communities, communities that actually care for each other, we can do the work of repair. We can do the work of making whole. And we can, you know, we have to navigate the linear timelines. We have to navigate work schedules and meetings and all of those things. But we can hopefully take time to create those moments and those spaces of community. I'm thinking of a healing space I attended for activists earlier this year um, that was, you had Reiki practitioners, you had masseuses, you had all these different people offering their gifts and people just coming and sitting and eating snacks and receiving embodied care. Wow. And it was 
so amazingly beautiful to see that happen for a group of people who had undergone trauma and loss. And it was, that's, that's part of that, um, that soft yet courageous work that, that that's part of the work that holds movements together and brings people from a place of suffering to a place of healing and a place of liberation. I really, I appreciate that you're courageously asking these questions because I think that that vulnerability, the strength and the vulnerability of truly having human needs around each other, truly being, and having human needs met outside the context of the nuclear family, that's a vulnerability that even most religious spaces, at least of the Western Christian flavor, don't often tackle. Sometimes they do. I've found that um, Black and POC congregations are often more willing to engage in that than majority white congregations. And honestly, that's part of why I enjoy working in those communities. The supper is truly a church supper. And people will be like, oh, yeah, the food was so good. Yes, of course it was good because people put love in it. Mm. White Christians just aren't often as good as, you know, they don't stay after church for two hours talking. They don't often say, and that's okay. That's like a cultural lineage and not every church has to do the same thing. But I think that, you know, part of honoring culture is saying like, wait, these are these are these are practices, collective practices of survival and thriving. Yeah. These are practices cultivated for generations by people who have often not had enough, have had to flee, have had to make do. And yet you have people come together and make a really beautiful meal beyond any tokenization. That's a beautiful embodied community practice. And there's a reason people come to church for that. I think ultimately that is everyone being fed and having enough. That's the goal. Like on any other metric, that's the goal. That's what, I don't mean to throw too much kindling in here, but I'm thinking of a church that I have visited here in Brooklyn that their, their historic building got struck by lightning, so they can't use it. So they have church in the church house. They have presentations. There's a Buddhist group upstairs and Mm. For Ramadan, they had a queer Muslim group meeting there to break their fast. And I've been, I like. That's beautiful. Beautiful. We don't all need to have, depending on the place, we don't all have to have our own separate buildings. Mm -hmm. uh, Why don't all the religions share? You know, I would love to have an interreligious center where every, where different faiths are sharing the same copy machine. I would love to. <laughs> That's, that is the image, right? Like we're we're all getting to worship in this space at different times, but we come together at the copy machine. <laughs> I, had a, I had a meeting with a, a new colleague in a few neighborhoods away from where I work who started at a uh, ELCA church 14 years ago. He was told by uh, the synod, oh, don't, don't get too attached. You're probably going to have to close it in a year. 14 years later, there's five or six churches that meet there in different different cultures, all of them. Um, There's a, they still run a preschool. They have ESL classes. They have a food pantry. They have a mutual aid group. Hmm. There's a garden next to their building. That's the kind of faith work I see as being, and all of it happened because 
the pastor and others cultivated relationships and said yes. Yeah. And like that, that that's the sort of hope I see where it's like, are all those people going to become members of the one particular church that technically owns that building? No. But does that church building belong to every person who walks through that door to attend a yeah. service, go to a meeting, to learn, to grow food? In a world where so much is, is kept locked away by, you know, doors and walls and property, churches are one of those last bastions where people can maybe come to like talk to other recovering addicts and learn a new language and get food. It's this like multi-tool of spaces that can be so rich. And I think that um, that, that, that is a thing worth cultivating. And that is one of those things that keeps me in the church even as I have little confidence that the institution will last the next 50 years. Well, Jean-Pierre, this has been such a beautiful and rich conversation and we could talk all day. And I, I hope this will be a jumping off point, not just for us, but for all those who are listening. And so I want to give you a chance to share places where people can find you, your work, the organizations that you're connected with. What are, what are the best ways for people to stay connected? In terms of the work I do, um, some cool, some groups that I uh, participate with, um, Crown Heights Care Collective, based in Brooklyn, is a great group. There's uh, Washington Square Park Mutual Aid is a good group here in New York City for anybody wanting to get plugged in. That is um, where I can be found right now. And I am, yeah, looking to expand my um, writing and other offerings very soon. Thank you. Oh, thank you for sharing. Well, until next time, my friend, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you so much, Lauren. That's it for today's episode. Thank you so much for listening to a soulful revolution. This podcast is entirely made possible by listeners like you. So if you like what you heard today, please subscribe, leave us a review and share it with a friend. We'll see you next time.